Hi, and welcome to the True Works Podcast, the podcast that equips you to understand how the gospel can transform your life and your work. I'm your host, Joshua Smith, and here with me I have my co-host, Doug Meikle. Doug, thanks for being on the show today. It is great to be here, Joshua. I always like when you're around. Yeah, you should. And today, obviously, we're talking about something very serious because I have my sweater vest on. You do have your sweater vest. I was just noticing that. It looks good. Just to be clear, don't touch me. Okay, okay. We're getting there. We are friends, we promise, but he has a little... I have a distance thing. Yeah. bubble thing. I, I definitely have a thing. Yeah. So that's part of your worldview, yeah, which is actually part of, part of our my worldview conversation. Is you don't poke me. That's okay. that's not a good thing. Okay. That's his worldview right now. But we're getting <laughs> we're working on to that? the bubble. I don't think that's a good thing. Okay. But, but please go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at your worldview, yeah. and we're going to be looking at other worldviews yeah. to, today too. Now, previously we equipped our podcast listeners with some of the. Uh, the useful tools that worldview uh, allows us to not really look at others, but look at ourselves. Uh, We were really wanting our uh, faith work intensive listeners to think about the fact that first we have a worldview, but also how the biblical narrative and how Christianity uh, informs that worldview and that we can improve it uh, to see the world as it really is. Uh, today, what we want to do is kind of a uh, show you how this applies to other worldviews. And we decided to select some authors that are a little far from home chronologically. The, uh, the youngest author here lived in the 16th century. Um, so, no, excuse me, 18th century. I got Good that grief, back. man. Yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah, that's you were the, the scholar. That's the youngest. The oldest was like 5th century BC. So that's right. we have Plato, Machiavelli, and Benjamin Franklin, that good old, uh, ben. good old Benji boy that yeah. you're going to look at for your readings. It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about, if you get nothing else, it is that it's all about the Benjamin full stop. Yes. No, it's Benjamin. Mic drop. Yeah. We're going to look at these uh, different articles. They're really short. It's a short amount of reading this week. Uh, but we're hoping that you can use some of those questions that we equipped you with of what is a human, where are humans going, what's uh, the biggest uh, purpose in life individually, collectively, is there life after death? Those are just some of the questions. What's wrong with us? What what's it, wrong with us? How can yes. we fix it? What's wrong with you is that you have this thing in your bubble that you don't like to be poked. Okay, we're all going to move on from this now, right? Okay, I need to leave that. Yeah, you can leave that alone now. Okay. But we want you to ask those questions of these authors, and we thought we could just do a little foray, just a little uh, practice of looking at those. So Mm -hmm. the first on the docket is Plato. Yeah. Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which many of you guys may have heard of before because you may have stumbled into it in, you know, some arbitrary arts class that you did at college, and uh, they talk about Plato's famous allegory. It's one of the most famous illustrations in all of Western history, uh, certainly in yeah. philosophy. But um, And your problem, that. as far as Plato is concerned, is that you are in the cave mm. and that you're kind of in the dark. And ultimately, all you can really see are shadows of 
the truth, that we don't really perceive things as they truly are, but only merely shadows. Mm-hmm. And how do we get out of that? Or do we? Well, let's stay in the cave just a little bit longer. Okay. Yeah. So we uh, are in, this is, this, is, this is an allegory. So the cave represents something. The shadows represent something. The light that are casting the shadows on the cave wall represent something. Before we get out of the cave, could you comment a little about what those elements represent in the allegory? And I was going to say, wait, you're the philosopher. Why don't you comment on what those allegorical items are? Okay. Well, if you say so. If you can do that briefly and concisely. Okay. How much time do I have exactly? Not enough for you to do your normal stuff. So let's just get to the point, shall we? Okay. Okay. So the... Shadows that we see in this allegory of the cave are what we perceive to be as real, but are not the real things. They're not even shadows of the real things because the real things are outside in the real world. And what's wrong with the world, with people, for Plato is a kind of ignorance that we don't know how the world really is. We're satisfied with something that is Mm. less than uh, real with mere shadows when we could have real trees, real rocks, real other interacting with real people. But the, also one of the problems that Plato sees is that we don't want to get out of our cave. Yeah, that we we're we totally like happy. It. We're kind of we're happy in our uh, ignorance, and uh, and we're okay being in the cave. In fact, he says there's grave risk for the folks who, the few people who manage to get out of the cave. Mm-hmm. That's its own risk. Yes, you'll see the world as it truly is, but there'll be a whole bunch of other folks that don't really appreciate you for that. Yeah, yeah. What he describes in this allegory is that people won't believe you. You'll come by, you'll go out into the world, into the real sunlight, seeing the trees and the forest and all of the wildlife and animals, and you'll come back and say, you've been satisfied with shadows. I have the real world. Oh, the people will respond, you're crazy. You're crazy. Yeah, the, yeah. The, I'm, I'm, the shadows are very nice, yeah, thank you. We're I, happy with our shadows. I think I'll stay right here. And you could become an outcast. You could, yeah. uh, what happened to Plato's teacher is that he was, he was killed for teaching these ideas. Socrates, he was killed by yeah. the Athenian state. Yeah. yeah. But let's leave the 6th century BC and get to my favorite place in the world. Tuscany. Tuscany. Yes. This keeps on coming it up. Comes, it keeps on coming up. Why? Because it's the cradle of our modern understanding of the world. Everybody knows this. It does. Yeah. yeah it is it true. Is. It is. And uh, because our next worldview is Machiavelli. So Machiavelli uh, was a um, political advisor. In fact, that role that you see today that uh, that presidential campaigns or other campaigns have of the presidential advisor, the campaign advisor, etc. That's not a new thing. It's been there. Well, it, it wasn't, no, it was not invented by it's Machiavelli. It's not completely a new thing. No, we can definitely say. We can yeah. definitely say that. And yeah. it was not completely invented by Machiavelli, but Machiavelli obviously is the, perhaps the most famous ever of the uh, political consultants of his, um, of his day and any other day, I guess. But um, for him... Uh, he is the ultimate, uh, what would be the right word for this, utilitarian in the mm-hmm. sense that is that, that uh, we have goals. Mm-hmm. We have goals and we want to achieve those goals. And I don't know whether he would say it this way exactly, but the means to those goals justify the ends is that we should be prepared. 
think the the ends justify those means. Ah, uh, yeah. Excuse me. The ends of those goals justify whatever means we choose. Uh, however, we, choose we can to. get it. Yeah, yeah. So, however, we can get it is good. And I do think sometimes that Machiavelli is uh, generally spoken of. Uh, I'm going to say too negatively. Even can't really say that, can you? But I guess because he is a person who wants to try and prepare his prince, the uh, the book is famously the prince that he writes, and prepare his prince to do well politically. And if the prince does well politically, of course, so does the city-state that he runs. So he's not without civic virtue at some level. Yes, right. But because he wants the city to flourish. But he uh, he is quite happy for the... Uh, the prince to use whatever means that is available available to try and achieve his political ends. Deception. Yes. uh, Well, does he even call it deception? For him, it's just... Well, for him, it's not. But when we're we're reading it, uh, uh, that's the sense that you get. Yeah. Yeah, if you you have to tell not just white little lies, but if you just have to completely tell, if it accomplishes... The security of the state and the yeah. popular, popular. That's what you would do. Yeah, yeah that's what you have to that's do. That's what you have to do. And he's coming along this long history in Western thought that uh, somehow that the uh, a power is united with the good, that the most powerful, if you're going to rule well, then you have to have a certain kind of wisdom and what we would call moral fiber or moral wisdom and Machiavelli is saying, yeah, no way, man. And what he does, he starts to go through these instances in history where, hey, you want to see successful princes that uh, secured uh, the security of their city-state? They weren't always virtuous. No. So if we want, we want that security, screw virtue. Yeah. Let's get power. Yeah. So for him, the entire kind of his entire worldview is about the 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 right exercise of power, and he is not subject to our petty view of what right is at all. He is the right exercise of power is what he is all about. So you recognize uh, Machiavelli and in caricature for sure in the short piece that we asked you to read, but you're also going to see there he has a, he has a view of. Of, of the world and, and what the world is and what good is and, and how one should achieve it and how one should keep hold of it. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, talk through with you guys when we ultimately teach this to you. Mm-hmm. What, do you th- what do you think of, of Machiavelli? Before uh, we leave Machiavelli, I want to say one last thing about okay. him. When you're looking at any of these characters, it's not only what they say, but it's also what they do not say. So if... One of the fundamental questions is, what is or who is God? That's going to have reverberations through your entire worldview. If we have someone who's talking about the most fundamental aspects and pursuits of their life, and God is not mentioned, that's telling you something of their view of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's telling you that, well... If he's real, he's inconsequential, or he's probably not real. He's probably not real. So we're wanting you yeah. to kind of read between the lines as well. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and just uh, as a 
sorry, you said the last word, and now I'm claiming the last word about Machiavelli. Uh, let's but, go ahead. That's okay. very Machiavellian. That's very Machiavellian of me, yeah. yes. But uh, look, he paid the the, uh, the price for his advice, like many political advisors who get fired if the campaign goes wrong or whatever. Machiavelli was fired and put in exile, I think, at least once, maybe twice mm. during his career. So he did... Um, yeah, and in fact, strangely writes, uh, not in th- this particular piece, we're going to ask about strangely writes in other places, but how he kind of respects the decision of those who fired him and banished him, because that's what princes should do. They should exercise really, power that way. Realize. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, let's leave Machiavelli behind and get, get to the 16th century. No, the 18th no, century. the 18th century. Yeah. That's right. And yes. good old Benjamin Franklin. Benji boy. Actually, honestly, this I read this and I'm like, this guy, I don't, I don't really relate what this guy has written to the Benjamin Franklin of the of the American myth, because the guy writing this, I'm just like, is he some kind of fool or what? You know, I don't know. That's how my that's my impression of 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 is that he might think that virtue is useful, but how it actually is acquired that he can just say one day, I'm going to be virtuous and I'm going to drive it by my you know, the way that I live my life and my ability to not uh, be subject to my desires. I just think the way it's written is just, no. Come on, man. There's nobody who can do that. And of course- There's nobody who can do that. There's nobody who can acquire virtue in this way. No, no. Uh, I see. And and what does Benjamin Franklin find? He finds that he improves a little, but he has a lot of way to go. Yeah, that he can't actually acquire the virtue that he wants the way that he wants to do it, just by mm-hmm. kind of- pulling himself up by his bootstraps. So there's yeah. certainly that element uh, in Benjamin Franklin as his topic is he's wanting to improve on these, I believe, 13 virtues. Uh, you know, my wife and I, Katie, we we read and we were actually um, a little encouraged. Were you? In this way, that, uh, that Benjamin Franklin cared about virtue. <laughs> In well, that way. I suppose that is true. Yeah, when, yeah. when we contrast uh, our, our kind of current situation, that he would be so concerned about it that he would make some plan, uh, try to make a measurable goal so that he could improve upon yeah. it. That's how serious. Now, you say, well, the execution you know, was it? And I agree. I agree with that. Uh, but I, I was, uh, was kind of encouraged. Now, he's certainly pulling himself up with his by his own bootstraps, he's certainly saying, you know, I'm the one who's going to make all the change here. Uh, but there's a view there of what's wrong with the world, but importantly, explicitly, who is going to fix what's wrong with yeah. the world? And for Ben Franklin, it's pretty clear that only one person is going to fix his problems. Benji Boy himself. Ben- Benjamin Franklin. Yep, that's who's going to fix those problems. Yeah, so I think... It's up to you guys. It's up to the folks who are going to uh, listen to this podcast and ultimately, excuse me, read these short pieces to make up their own minds about these guys. But if you think, if you ask yourself, or if you ask the kind of basic questions about these worldviews, like for example, what is a human being? Um, for Plato, he's essentially a slave and in chains. For Machiavelli, he's a man after power. And for Franklin, he's kind of this master of his own fate. Mm-hmm. And I think as you go through this illustrate, you know, hopefully you'll be able to see that for yourselves and then start thinking, of, what do I think it's a human beings here to do? What, what, what are their character? What are they like? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're trying to focus on here for you folks listening to this is to try and give you a sense is that you have many of these 
basic kind of assumptions about yourself and about the world around you and how it works. And those things are driving how you interact with the world. And if you want some new material, new in the sense of it's newer than the 18th century, uh, just look at advertisements. Yeah. So what what is the picture of the best life or the good life that product advertisements are giving to you? It's something like the formula is usually pretty close to your life will not go well in this area unless you have this or even more, your just life is not going to go well. Yeah. If you want to be cool, you need to have one of these sweaters. Correct. Yes. So Exhibit uh, A. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. So my life is going well because I have a sweater vest. That's awesome. Um, but for those of you out there that do not have sweater vests, I'm then, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry for you first. But second of all, getting back to our point here, is that, um, yeah, well, advertising, I think, is, well, advertisers know more about your heart's desires uh, than, than, than anyone else. Mm -hmm. They know more about your heart's desires sometimes than you do. Mm. And this is especially true today in the world that we have where, um, where advertisers have way more and way more granular data about you and your desires. But as, as you were saying there, just picture whatever, well, let me give you another illustration. Please. I, um, I, I think I remember really struck with the power of advertising. Uh, did I tell you I went to Harvard? No. Yeah. I so did. As a student? Yeah. No. See? I'm, we are becoming better of, friends. Yes, I'm all a man the time. of mystery. I, 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 you know, what can I say? No, I did the advanced management program at Harvard, and that was about ten years ago. And uh, anyway, we had a marketing class there, and one of the cases was on Volkswagen. Uh, Volkswagen. Okay. And uh, we, I had just bought my son a Mark V Volkswagen. I think. I think it was a Mark V Volkswagen Golf. Yeah. And the case was around Volkswagen and establishing a brand here in North America, etc. And what was weird in this is that they they had their segmented and targeted population of buyers for this car, and they had five or six bullet points of who this person was, uh -huh. and it was my son. It was the most bizarre thing ever that these folks had created a brand targeted at folks with these kinds of behaviors huh. and aspirations, mm -hmm. and that's who would buy their car. And I had a kid that bought their car, that had exactly those kind of brand aspirations. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, maybe I'm not this kind of character that makes all his own decisions when I want to make them whenever I want to make them uh, or yes. whatever I want to mm -hmm. make. Maybe I'm being pushed around in ways that I don't even perceive or understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, the people today who really know a lot about us and how we want to live our lives, our advertisers, because that's what they, they, they understand our underlying motivations. Because let's face it, no one really wants a car. What they want is they want power, or they want freedom, or they want a family, or they mm -hmm. want those things that actually drive you in yes. life, and they attach. And, that, and, and to, be, to give these guys their credit on worldview, they're trying to get underneath the stuff, the layer of the stuff, yes. and get underneath that and say, what's really driving you? What's really making a difference in your life? Mm -hmm. What do you desperately want? For many folks, they desperately want a home and a family. Um, but strangely, oftentimes, they, they, they might even have some clue of that, but won't change and reorder their life to get it. Mm, anyway, but yeah. that's a podcast for another day. Yes, it'll be on the docket.
it will be sometime on the docket. But uh, yeah, we wanted just to at the end uh, at the end here just point you back towards take a look at these worldviews, take a look at each one of them, allow those guys to kind of sink in a little bit, and then also compare your own mm-hmm. your own worldview. What is a human being? What's wrong with the world? Where am I going? What's the fix with the world that's being presented to yeah, me? Yeah. Because that is going to drive, the answer to those questions are going to drive so many things that in your life. Um, yeah, I guess that's where I'll, I think we could end it for today. Sounds good. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the True Works Podcast. I am Joshua. I've been your host, and this is Doug. He's been my co-host. Yep. If you want to find out more about what we do here at True Works, please visit us on our website at trueworkshouston.org. This podcast and other podcasts can be found wherever you can find podcasts out there on the web. That's it for now. Looking forward to talking next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.